Well, this morning we are we are so blessed to have Ruthie with us, Pastor Ruthie Oberg, and um, I've actually known her for quite a while, not really well, but we have crossed paths many times. I don't know if you know this, I've been in the in the Iowa district for 21 years, and um, some of our youth back when I was youth pastor here. Um, actually would come home from camp talking about Ruthie and how much they liked her. You probably don't even know that. Um, but uh, Ruthie is just a phenomenal expository preacher. She's been a lead pastor. She's been an associate pastor. She's been a pastor's wife alongside her husband. Um, she's been a, uh, she's a mother of three. Is that right? 32 foster kids and three natural births, and she's got grandkids, and she's, she's currently working in Springfield um, with the Flowers Pentecostal Heritage Center, which uh, does an incredible work that she'll share about, but um, she's just very, very articulate and a wonderful, wonderful gift to us this morning. So give her a hand as she comes, Ruthie Oberg. Thank you, Pastor Barry. It's wonderful to be with you guys today. It is my honor. Uh, one of the things that I do is I, I travel around the, the nation and internationally teaching church history and Pentecostal identity and, and all of those wonderful things. And it's a joy to me when I get to be back in Iowa. I'm not originally from here, as you'll probably tell at some point in, in this morning. I'm actually from South Texas, but pastored in Iowa for 24 years and many youth camps. Uh, working together with some of you, some of your kids I probably had in a cabin, and I apologize for any way they came back harmed or, or in any other way. I'll take responsibility for that. If they came back better, that was God. But as Pastor Barry said, uh, what I have been doing since 2016 is working with the Flower Pentecostal Heritage Center, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about what that that means we serve the assemblies of God as the, the official archives, historical documents. We manage all of the history and all of, all of those wonderful things. How many of you loved history in school? All right, how many of you would have just rather gone to recess? All right, well, here's the thing. How many of you like stories? All right, well, you know, I try to do as much story kind of stuff as possible. But if you are ever in Springfield, Missouri, feel free to come and visit us. We're located at the national office. And if you call early enough, I'll put you up in my house. We keep a room up there for ministers, missionaries, and just folks coming through. You're welcome to stay with us, and we'll walk you around Springfield and show you stuff and, and take you to what is, is called, um, not just nationally, but internationally, the Fort Knox of the Pentecostal world. We have researchers that come from all over the world. Uh, we recently had a, a week-long researcher from Berkeley in California. We have, have that come from France. Um, we had somebody from Lithuania just this week coming to study what God is doing around the world. Now, I've used a word a couple times already this morning, and that's the word Pentecostal. How many of you, that's a new word for you? Okay, a few of us here. This is a new word, and I've used that. Now, when you all drove up, I, I didn't pay attention when I was driving into the parking lot to see what the sign said uh, of the official name of this church. What is the name of this church? First Assembly of God in Indianola, Iowa. Okay, all right, so... 
if we were to drive in and we don't know nothing, you know, driving in and we see that sign, what would we assume? What kind of church is this? How would I know you was Pentecost? You didn't have nothing on that sign. You just, you just, you're getting ahead of it. <laughs> Assembly of God. All right. All right. Now, in, if I were to open the phone book in Indianola, Iowa, I imagine that I would run into a couple other, if I went to C in the yellow pages, if we still have yellow pages, and, and I looked up C for churches, um, I'd see A there, Assembly of God, probably up pretty toward the front. But what's some other names I might see in the phone book? The Baptists are here. The Methodists are here. Who? The Catholics are here. The Lutherans are here. How did we get all of these different churches? And, and what's, what's the whole thing? Can I just give you a, 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 like a thousand years? Okay, 2,000 years of church history in about two minutes. Is that all right? Okay. Now, you are privileged. Any of you who happen to own a Bible... You are privileged to have a copy of the very first church history book ever written. Did you know that? It still exists. Um, we have it in very close to the original form. Anybody know what that first church history book is? The book of Acts. Bible scholars right up here. The book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, we have a church. It ends at Acts 29, at least the book does, the story doesn't, but the book does. In Acts chapter 28, with the apostle Paul, he's in prison, and then he gets executed. We don't see it in the Bible, executed under Emperor Nero and Peter and all that. But the disciples continued, and they kept building church. They went all over the known world and started all of these churches. And the names that they gave them were simply the church. And then they started referring to themselves as a certain, certain way, a word that meant the church is all of the body of Christ all over the world. And so they called it the universal church. But they didn't use universal because that's an English word and they didn't speak English. So they used a Latin word and that word was Catholic and so the Catholic Church then continued for a thousand years, the Church Universal. And then about 1100, here's something that you stay in church long enough, you'll find out that this happens. Sometimes folks get in an argument. And there's a disagreement. And this happened in about the old 1100s, somewhere in there. And there was a disagreement between two leaders in the church. One of them was the head of the church that was located in Rome, in Italy, all right? And he was called the Bishop of Rome. Now, there was another leader in the church, and he lived over in Constantinople, and he was called the Bishop of Constantinople. And they had a disagreement on who could tell each other what to do. You know what I'm saying? And so what happened was that the bishop in Rome told the bishop in Constantinople, he said, you don't get to be part of the church anymore. We're going to kick you out. And the bishop in Constantinople said to the bishop in Rome, oh, yeah, well, we don't want to be part of your church anyway. So there. Uh. And so he started another church. They just split. And so we had the universal church, the Catholic church. And guess what this church called themselves? 
the Orthodox Church. You're Catholic, you're universal, but we're Orthodox. You know what Orthodox means? We're right. <laughs> so we got the right church over in the East, and we got the universal church over in the West in Rome, and this is when it starts to be called Roman Catholic. Ah, and then we get the Eastern Orthodox. And so we have, we have Eastern Orthodox churches in our area. There's some in Des Moines. They're usually referred to by their geographic location, like, like the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Romanian Orthodox or Syrian or Coptic, what have you. And so these churches went along side by side until about the 1500s when one of the Catholics started doing some stuff. And, and what he did, he, he really wasn't a real important fella. He was just a, a, your, your average little, little monk. And he was teaching a class in Germany. And he happened to have gotten a new copy of, of uh, the Greek New Testament. And as he was reading it, things just started, boom, just coming off the page all over the place while he's reading it. And, and as he's doing it, he gets these ideas. And he says, you know what? I think it'd be a good idea if we all got together and talked about this stuff. You know, let's have a church meeting. So he wrote down 95 things that he thought the church should talk about. And he wrote them down, he took them and he put them on the bulletin board there in the college town where he taught in, in Wittenberg, Germany. Anybody know his name? Oh, look how smart y'all are. Martin Luther. And what happened was when he did that, rather than getting a, a, a people to get together and let's just talk, what he ended up was, as he also got a message from the bishop in Rome that said, you're going to have to go your own way. And so he did. And guess what they called their part of the church? The Protestants. They were called Protestants. Wait, but you know why they're called Protestants? Because they protested. So we've got the universal church, right? Catholic. We've got the Orthodox church, the right church, right? In the Orthodox. And then we've got the protesters, now, these, these protesters had one basic thing, that they wanted to make sure that the church of their day was, was understanding. This is what they wanted them to know. Now, Daniel, go ahead and give us this. Here was the principle that was so important to these Protestants. It was this. The church should teach the same thing the apostles taught, nothing more. Don't add to it, but don't leave anything out. This is what the, the reformers, Protestant reformers, call sola scriptura, scripture only. This should be the foundation of what the church taught. Now, in that Protestant movement, then there were all kinds of people that as they read the scriptures, they said, I think that we should talk about this. And others said, I think we should talk about this. And so we got all kinds of different ones. So we, we talked about how many of you were, were raised Lutheran? Or been to a Lutheran church. All right, we got two good Lutheran fellas back here. Go, Martin. Uh, how many of you maybe, what's some other Protestant church? Any, any Methodists? You have Methodist background? Oh, we got lots. Go, Wesley. Got lots of good Methodists. Any Baptist background? Oh, we got Baptists all over the place. Go, John. He didn't start the Baptist church, by the way, John the Baptist, but... Go in there. Okay, how, uh, any, we got any Catholics, former Catholics? 
all right, yeah, we got several Catholics. And so we've got all kinds of, of churches that came out of this Protestant movement. Now, in the late 1800s, then there was another movement that began slowly and then, and then built up. And these were people who were part of the Protestant movement. And so they believed this Protestant principle, that the church should teach everything the apostles taught, nothing more and nothing less. And as they began to read in the Bible, and they read in that first church history book, and they said, just like Luther said when he looked around the church of his day, and he said, something's not quite right here. These folks started looking around, and as they read about that first church, and they read what God did, and they read about how lives were changed and impacted with the supernatural, and these people then took that Protestant principle, and they just amped it up a little bit, and we got the Pentecostal principle. Let me tell you what that is. The Pentecostal principle says the church should not only teach the same thing the apostles taught, they should experience the same thing the apostles experienced, nothing more but nothing less. And so what does it mean to be Pentecostal? In a nutshell, a Pentecostal church, a Pentecostal movement, a Pentecostal people will believe that what God did once, he still does. Not just what he said once is still true, but how he once behaved, what he once did, he continues to do. We actually sang a very Pentecostal song this morning when we sang, the God who healed before heals today. The God who saves before saves today. How Pentecostal is that? So some people think that being Pentecostal is weird. That's not weird at all. We simply believe that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation not only teaches the truth, but shows us how we can live. So you are part of the Assemblies of God, which along with, with the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Methodists and all of these other great folks are part of the Protestant movement. But in the Pentecostal movement, there are some things that make us a wee bit unique. And I'm going to tell you three things that I am convinced in my study of, of Pentecostalism and church history and all of these things that it is imperative that we have all three of these things if we're going to call ourselves a Pentecostal or Assemblies of God Church. So are you ready to find out three things that we better have? We lose any one of these and we are not truly Pentecostal. Okay, so Daniel, what's the first thing that we've got to have? A call of return. Now I want you to catch this word return. Sometimes when people talk about the Pentecostal movement or Pentecostals, that they brought something new to the church. Pentecostals have never claimed to have brought new. Be careful of people that are always trying to give you new revelation. The Pentecostal movement has been historically a call to return to what God gave us in the beginning. That's why it's sometimes called a primitive, a restorationist movement. A restoration of what God intended his church to be from the beginning. 
Not that he's doing something he's never done before. He's doing what he has always intended. And the first thing that Pentecostals will consistently call people to is a return to the apostolic doctrine of the scriptures. Now, when I use the word apostolic, then I am referring to the early, the foundational teaching of the church in the book of Acts. Now, I want you to take a look at this description of the the church, not yet, Daniel. He just gets so excited. I love you, Daniel. I love you. Quincy, remind me, there's a gift card in my thing. We need to give Daniel a gift card because he's just wonderful. (laughs) They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching. Can I submit to you? that Pentecostal people should be the most biblically literate people within the church. We have a love for the word of God because we believe that what God did here, he still does. And if we wanna know what God does, we want to read about it, yes? Again, in our song today, we talked about, we're calling on the God of Jacob. We're calling on the God of Moses, the God of Mary, the God of David. How are you going to call on him if you don't know what he did for those people? You know, you, you just come in, you don't know, know, know nothing about Christianity, the Bible, and we come in here and we're talking about how we want to be all covered in blood. You know, that's a little weird. You know, you know what I'm saying? Unless you know about the sacrificial system and the teaching that God gave in the Old Testament through that to prepare a people for the atonement of Christ, that doesn't make any sense. And so as Pentecostal people, we want to know what this book has to say about God. We want to know what this book has to say about Jesus. We want to know what it says about how we do church. We want to know what it says about how we behave and who we are and what we believe. And when we read it in the book, then we say, this is what I believe. That's a Pentecostal court. Did you know that in the assemblies of God, we have a little list of things we believe? If you want to know what they are, talk to your pastor. Because I'm going to tell you, if you're going to be part of a church, you need to know what they believe. We could be loony birds here and you wouldn't know unless you read the thing. But the very first part of it says, we believe that the Bible, the scriptures, are the inspired word of God and are our authoritative standard of faith and conduct, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. What that means is we believe in this church, this is the official doctrine of this church, we believe that the scriptures have the authority, the right to tell us what to believe and how to behave. And so if we have something in our lives that doesn't line up with the scripture, we don't change the scripture, we realign our lives to the scripture. That is what it means to be a Pentecostal person. That is a standard, it is the the first, because the other doctrines that follow out of that flow from this book. So you have to establish that this book, along with the rest of the Protestant movement, we believe that this book is the authoritative rule for our faith and conduct. Now, we have been accused as Pentecostal people of getting a little weird with some of the things in the book. And we've had these accusations since the beginning. 
Back in 1906, there was a revival that broke out in Los Angeles, California. And some of the criticism that were, was leveled at, at that little church in, in California was in regard to the scriptures. They said to them that they were taking the scriptures far too literally. They said to the pastor, young man by the name of William Seymour, and they said to Brother Seymour, you're reading things in the Bible and then you're applying them to you. That's taking it far too literal. What happened then is a description of history. It is not for you today. And you're taking that on yourself where you shouldn't. The other thing they leveled at Brother Seymour, who was an early Pentecostal pioneer, the other thing they leveled at him was, you've got things happening in your church that you can't find in the Bible. And so Brother Seymour, being a student of the scriptures, was concerned with this. And finally in his newspaper, go ahead, Daniel. And in his, his newspaper, The Apostolic Faith, we have copies of all of his papers, all of his writings actually, in, in our archives. And this was his response to that. He said, we are measuring everything by the word. Every experience must measure up with the Bible. And then, then he goes into the criticisms. He said, some say that is going too far, that we're taking this too literal, that when we read that they spoke in tongues, they laid hands on the sick, when we read those things, that we're taking them too literal. He said, if we're taking them too literal, if that's going too far, if we've lived too close to the word, We'll settle that with the Lord when we meet him in the air, which is a pretty good way to look at it. If we get outside of what God has for us, we're going to trust that God is going to come in and correct that. And this is one of the reasons he gives us pastors. But we are a people of the word. So can I just tell you that you cannot call yourself a Pentecostal people or an Assemblies of God church in all truth if you are not a people that are into the Word of God. And so when your pastor stands here and makes an announcement about life groups or the sermon series or Wednesday night Bible study, you need to have already on your calendar, it doesn't matter if the school puts soccer practice that time. You can pay me extra for that later. <laughs> this is the standard for us, and we want to know this book. Because I tell you what, there have been some Pentecost people got outside the book and caused trouble. So when he says there's life groups, there's discipleship, we're going to be doing this sermon series in the book of Luke. You need to already be having, reading the book of Luke this, this week. Look up, see if you can find how many references to food are in the book of Luke this week. See how many he misses. You know, just have some fun with it. But we need to be people of the word. But I will tell you this, that we need to be not just people of the book. And this is important. It is the authoritative rule of faith and conduct. But we have made a mistake within the Protestant movement in that we have often elevated the worship of the Holy Trinity to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. But the third person of the Trinity is not the Bible. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the... 
Holy Spirit. So as Pentecostal people, Daniel, one of the things that is important to us is we call people not just with a return to the fullness of the Word of God, but to a fullness of the experience of the apostolic experience in the New Testament. Listen to this second description of this church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Because here's, here's something that is so important for us to understand. The word of God is true. It is our standard of belief and conduct. But until the word of God gets off of the page and into your life with a transforming power, it has done you no more good than the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the, uh, the Hare Krishna, in, in any of that, or the fortune cookie at the Chinese restaurant. It'll give you some principles for living that will make you more successful in life. But I'm going to tell you, I need more than just principles in my head. I need life transformation because I am a sinful creature. You can ask my travel companion, Dr. Williams. She'll tell you all the stupid stuff that I do. And how many times, Dr. Williams, do I say, Jesus, I need you. Because it's more than just my knowledge. It's a transforming power. See, here's something that we need to understand. As Pentecostal people, we don't just have an intellectual assent to the truths of the Word of God. We expect an experience that not just transforms our mind, but transforms our very being. Because we expect an encounter with God. Not just to come to church to get good information. We want transformation. There's an old Pentecostal course that went like this. You won't leave here like you came in Jesus' name. Bound, oppressed, tormented, sick, or lame. For the Holy Ghost of Acts is still the same. Anybody remember this old course? You won't leave here like you came in Jesus' name. Because, see, Pentecost cannot be taught. It has to be caught. And when we have an experience with God that changes who we are, and this is why in the worship time that we have, the goal of the worship team is not to impress you with all of their skills and talents. It's to build an environment that invites the moving of the Holy Spirit so that he can touch a life that needs to be transformed with the power of God. Now, sometimes... We get confused on these things. And one of our earlier superintendents, go ahead, Daniel. I think, yeah, we did put a picture. Thomas Zimmerman, one of our, well, actually our longest serving general superintendent, said this quote, and I think it's just apropos here. He said, the Holy Spirit is the river and scripture is the banks. Now, I want you to get the, the, the simile that he's using, actually metaphor here. He says, if the river overflows the banks. Now, we got the Des Moines River not far from here, right? And we understand what happens when rivers overflow the banks. It causes some damage, correct? He says, if the river overflows the banks, if people's experience of what they're calling the Holy Spirit gets outside of the scripture, it causes damage. 
And this is why as Pentecostals especially, it is imperative that we know this book because since we believe that God will speak to anyone with a, with a word from the Lord, we have to be able to have something to compare that with because otherwise we get weirdness. If we get an experience that is outside of the book, it can cause damage. But, he says, if the river runs dry, if all you got is an old dry riverbed, what good are those banks? And what he's saying is you can be able to quote all of the scriptures. You can memorize, get into junior Bible quiz, thank God for Bible quiz, and do all of those things. But if the spirit is not flowing through your life, this has not transformed you and you have not experienced what God truly has for you. And could I submit to you that there are people in the Protestant movement today who have a love for the word, but they have not yet experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And there is a dryness to their faith. But God has more for us than just that. He has a transforming. Did you know that before we were called Pentecostal people, we were referred to as holiness people. Anybody heard that? Because, see, the Holy Spirit is not just given to give you little experience in church with some little chills that feels good. It is meant to transform you to a life of holiness. And if you can shout and speak in tongues and dance and get all excited, but you can't go home and live right, you can't go home and be, be true to your wife. You can't turn off the computer when you're supposed to turn it. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? God, that the Pentecostal people would be referred to as holiness people again. Now, I'll be honest with this miraculous stuff. I have never seen God turn water into wine. And even if he did, I'm assembly of God, I couldn't drink it if he did. But I'll tell you what I have seen in my years of pastoring. I have seen God transform a man who before this time was drinking up his paycheck every week and he had kids at home that didn't have it together. God touched him, transformed his life, turned that wine into food on the table for some little kids, some shoes that they could take with a life transformed by the power of God. And if we are going to be Pentecostal people, we have got to be people who are experiencing and expecting and teaching toward life change of the power of the Holy Spirit. But this, it's, it's not enough to just have the Word of God and an experience with God. I'm looking at the clock. Can I, can I tell a story? All right. I was, was doing a library project in South Af no, Western Africa, and I happened to be uh, uh, cataloging an anthology of religion. And so I opened it up and I, just to see what the book said about, about Pentecostalism. And when I did, I think I didn't put the pictures. Is there a picture of snakes next? No, okay, I didn't put the picture up there. But when I opened the Pentecostals, the picture that was there was all these old, good old boys, and they was passing snakes around the church. Now, anybody ever heard of this? All right, so, you know, that's what some people think about Pentecostals. And I was, was at an academic symposium at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee a couple years ago. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in Appalachia. This is my opportunity. So I contacted their, their church history professor and I said, um, uh, Dr. David, where could I find a snake handling church to go to? 
And he said, well, it's illegal here in Tennessee, but I'll send you to Alabama. <laughs> so he gave me a phone number. I called up the pastor in Alabama and I, I said, now, because uh, I know they don't always, they're not open to everybody. And I said, do you allow guests in your church? I would love to come visit your church. I told him who it was. He said, well, we have uh, uh, um, every once in a while on a Friday night, we have a service where we invite people to come. And I said, I will be there. And so I got in the car and I drove out to Alabama and I come in and I'm, I'm walking in and it must have been bring your own snake night because everybody else seemed like was coming in with a box with a snake in it. Now, I, but it was okay if you didn't bring your snake, there's a box up on the platform where they had extra if you needed one. Now, I, I'm from Texas. In elementary school, we had a whole class devoted to how to identify snakes because this was a matter of survival where I grew up. And I'm, I promise you that what I saw in that church was timber rattlers, cottonmouths, water moccasins, and, and copperheads. And they got to this place in the service where, you know, the spirit was moving, things were cooking. Uh, There's about 20 of us in the church. And all of a sudden, people just knew it was time to bring out the snakes. Now, when I came, I had planned on sitting in the back row. But the pastor showed me up front. They had a duct tape line across the altar. And he said, now, we don't take up the serpent past this line. And I figured the snakes know where their line is. So I sat on the second row so I could see. And it was absolutely amazing. Now, um, before you all bring snakes next week, <laughs> Pastor Barry, I, um, let me just tell you this. Now, these folks have a scripture for what they do. Book of Mark. Jesus is saying to his disciples, these signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. Now, not only did they have snakes, but they had a jar of strychnine that they kept in the pulpit and just passed it around, drinking this, all this business in the church. They've got a scripture and they have the experience. I watched them tossing these snakes at one another across the platform. And, and, and I asked the pastor, I said, you ever been bit? He said, I've been bit 18 times. I, once I stopped breathing, but I started back up. So they, they've got an experience. These first two signs, because see, when I got back to the university, somebody asked me if they'd heard that I went. They said, do you think those people are really Pentecostal? Are they true Pentecostals? I said, well, they have a scripture for what they do. And they have a supernatural experience along with it. Although they also had, had some people back in the back of the church in the pictures that died. That's another story. They have a scripture. They have an experience. But there's one thing that they don't have. And that is the third thing that to be truly Pentecostal, you have got to have. Not only do you have to have the doctrine of the Word of God and an experience of the Spirit, but you have to be on mission with what God is doing because you see for those people what they do is they come together and and and, and together in a small group they experience a, a supernatural thing that others who have more wealth and more power and more influence would never even think about doing but I tell you what they are not is missional I had to get permission to come into their meetings on a certain time. You just don't invite all your neighbors when you're pulling out the, the timber rattler, you know? 
The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Catch this. God is on a mission to redeem a lost world, and he invites a people to join him. And he takes those people and he teaches them his plan, his word, his way. And then he empowers them with the Holy Spirit so that they can then join him in the mission. And if as the Assemblies of God or any other Pentecostal church just comes together, has some good sermons, has some chills and thrills of an experience of the Holy Spirit, but is not joining with God in the outreach to the lost and dying world, we have no right calling ourselves Pentecostal or Assemblies of God. In 1914, Daniel. In 1914, about 300 folks gathered in Hot Springs, Podunk, Arkansas to get together to discuss how are we going to preserve the Pentecostal revival that God has given. And they called folks to come to a little place in Hot Springs, DCO Opperman already had it rented out for a short-term Bible institute to train preachers. And so they said, let's use that building that Opperman's got rented out and we'll call everybody to come. How can we preserve this? So they met at the Hot Springs Opera House and Saloon. Now, many of you have been taught in AG history that, that they met at the Hot Springs Opera House, but the finishing part of the title of that is Saloon. The first general council pastor was held at a bar. And the early Pentecostals, you watch them in their advertisements, they love to do this because they figured if God could redeem people, why not places? So actually, our very first headquarters was in a converted brothel in Finley, Ohio. I love that story. And so they met there in Hot Springs, and here's what they did. They said, they put it, somebody raised a motion, they prayed, and then they put it on paper. Now, it sounds like some kind of a promise you get in a late-night infomercial. But these people were serious when they said, we commit ourselves to the greatest evangelistic movement the world has ever seen. The third general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, J.W. Welch, said this. He said, the Assemblies of God exist for no other reason than as a mission-sending organization. We exist to equip people with the Word of God and the power of God to fulfill the mission of God. That is the only reason that this church exists. Now, was this a pipe dream? I mean, 300 people in Podoc, Arkansas, with zero influence, zero power, zero programs. Now, I'm going to step away from the pulpit for a minute and just talk as a historian. Because to look at this kind of statement, the greatest evangelistic movement the world has ever seen, sounds like a pipe dream. But there is historical evidence that it was a God-inspired vision. And here's why. Just looking at the historically statistic, statistical numbers, in 100 years, these 300 people started a movement that today numbers 67 million around the world. There is no other story in church history that equals that kind of explosive growth percentage-wise unless you go back to the first Pentecostal church in Jerusalem. Catch that. God did something with these 300 people who under the power of the Holy Spirit changed an entire world. I want you to catch something about the church that you belong to. 
the Assemblies of God, only 5% of people in the Assemblies of God live in the United States. 95% of us are around the world. This is a global church, a global church. Statistically, it is also within the United States the most ethnically diverse denomination in the entire country because we believe that God has called us to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and we have an obligation to them. What kind of people build a church like that? Let me just quickly tell you one story about one, one little couple. Go ahead, give me a, a picture up there, Daniel, of, of these folks. Mark and Gladys Bliss. Mark, in 1958, came to Central Bible Institute at that point in Springfield, Missouri, to study. Now, he'd had some bad experiences with girls, so he had sworn off girls. And just said, you know what, God, I'm just going to serve you as a single man because women are, are just, they're just, they're just Jezebels. And so he went to Bible school and he started studying. He devoted himself to his study. But one day he was walking past the library and there was a girl coming down the steps. And he began to reconsider his commitment. <laughs> and he went over to Gladys Helm and he said, uh, hello, my name is Mark. And she smiled. I've heard him tell this story. She smiled at him. Guys, this is a clue. If she don't smile at you, keep walking. <laughs> she smiled at him, so that encouraged him. So he went over and asked her if she would like to go with him to the prayer meeting that was going to take place on Friday night. And she said yes. And Mark and Gladys had their first date and then a year later, they got married, and both of them felt the call of God to go anywhere he would call them, and God blessed them fairly quickly with a little girl that they named Karen, and a call soon came that there was a need to help out a lady named Florence Stidell who had started a leper colony in Liberia, West Africa, and she needed somebody who would come and help her with discipling the lepers of West Africa. Now, would you take your toddler to a leper colony? Probably not. But Mark and Gladys said, the love of Christ constrains us. And they took Karen and born then was Debbie. And Karen and Debbie grew up as toddlers running down the streets with all the, the children of the lepers and working together. And they were just having a great time. But then something else happened in... Iran, and there was a group of Armenian believers who were living outside of Tehran who wanted to grow in their faith, but there, there weren't any, any discipleship for them, and so they heard about the Assemblies of God, wrote a letter to Springfield, Missouri, said, could you send us someone who could teach us the Bible? And so the Assemblies of God Missions Department put out a call, is anybody willing to go and open up Iran for the Assemblies of God? Mark and Gladys and their two girls heard that call and said, we would go. And so they got on a boat for two months. Honey, I don't want to take two toddlers to a restaurant. A boat for 60 days sailing. Matter of fact, by the time they got to Iran, baby Mark was on the way. 
They got in Iran, met the Armenian believers, found the need. We've got to translate things into Persian. We've got to learn a language. There was so much work to do. They started building a, a little classroom where they could teach people. And pretty soon the church was growing and, and people were getting saved and they had new, new places to go. And then one of their converts, a young man by the name of, of Hykovsepian, don't put his picture yet, of Hykovsepian, got saved, felt the call to pastor. They started training him. And in October, on October 25th of 1969, Mark and Gladys and their three kids got in, in their first speed the light vehicle in the nation over there. Got in their speed the light car with Hike, his wife, Takush, and their infant baby. So we got what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We got eight people because that's how we used to travel in the car, and they were going to look at a place where Hike wanted to pastor a church. And while they were on the way, they passed by this little town where uh, earlier Mark and Hike had both been arrested because the town didn't want them there. They'd been preaching and the, they'd been arrested. So they stopped on the outskirts of the town to have a prayer meeting. Everybody piled on the vehicle and they got out and they were praying. And Gladys told me the story. So we just, we just, the Holy Spirit, fell, we just kept praying and praying. And pretty soon by the time we got back in the car, it was darker than we had thought it would be when we wanted to get, get to where we were going. But they piled in the car and Mark was was driving and what Mark never saw was the truck without any lights that had broken down and stopped in the middle of the road and going full speed Mark Bliss rammed that little car right into the back of that trailer instantly killing all three of his children as well as the infant child of Hike and Takush Hovsepian. Gladys was knocked unconscious at the scene, laid on a gurney in the hospital hallway for three days before anybody even looked at her because they didn't think she would survive. She did not regain consciousness for a month. When she did wake up, her husband had to tell her that she was no longer a mother. He had buried all three of her children. Mark Bliss wrote back to the Assemblies of God. We have, have it written, published in the Pentecostal Evangel when they were letting the, the churches know what had just happened to our missionaries. He wrote this back. He said, my heart, Gladys has not woke up yet, by the way. My heart has been filled with sorrow. But everything we have done to this point has been for Jesus. And my sorrow is being turned to joy even now. I can testify to you that God's grace that I have preached these many years is proving to be sufficient and he is flooding my soul and he has given me comfort and peace and I am believing he will do the same for Gladys. This is a husband writing knowing he's going to have to tell his wife. I have never felt closer to the heart of God. And then he said this, and this was the byline on the article in the Evangel. He said, I have planted three seeds in the soil of Iran that I expect to grow into a church. Hykovsepian went on to plant that church. The Iranian Revolution of 1979, which many of you remember, when the Ayatollah overthrew the Shah of Iran and turned it into an Islamic, a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, by the way, Mark and Gladys fled Iran just one day before the hostages were taken. Many of you remember the embassy crisis led to the, the election of Ronald Reagan in many ways. Got out of the country one day before that. Their neighbor called to let them know government officials were knocking at the door the day after they left. 
Over the next two decades, Mark and Gladys, who moved to Bangladesh and began to minister to refugees there, they watched as they heard the story of the believers that they had converted and led to Christ face ex increasing opposition and persecution. All of the missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed under the Ayatollah, still is. Bibles in Persia were banned and became scarce. Several of our pastors were killed, including, go ahead and give us the picture, including Haik Hovsepian, who later became the general superintendent of the underground assemblies of God in Iran. He was kidnapped and, and, and killed by the Islamic regime. They found his body on the side of the road. The regime took full responsibility for having killed this pastor. Mark and Gladys watched as all of this were happened. The church came under tremendous pressure, and Mark and Gladys feared that it would wither away and die. But history has a funny way of proving us wrong. In the last 20 years, I'm speaking from this moment, in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam first came to Iran. In 1979, when Mark and Gladys left the country, there were an estimated 500 Christians who had been converted from a Muslim background. At the end of 2022, there were hundreds of thousands, some estimate more than a million. And listen to this, because I just pulled this off the web. According to research organization Operation World, the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world is located in, guess where? Iran. Do you know where the second fastest growing one has been? Afghanistan, which is led primarily by Iranian Christians. Now, when Mark and Gladys moved their kids to a leper colony and then to Iran, they had no idea what faced them in front of them. But Mark Bliss, by faith, said, I am going to plant these seeds. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I trust that God knows what he's doing. His grace is sufficient. And God has been faithful. I'll just show you a, a little picture next. Because this little lady, Gladys Bliss, up until last June, was my next-door neighbor. And you will never meet a more joyful. You walk into her house, and it's almost like time stopped. Pictures of three little children, aged 13, 11, and 3. Hike of Sepian standing in the pulpit, right there over the, the fireplace. What kind of people did it take to go from 300 in Arkansas to 67 million worldwide? It took people who were committed to the word of God. It took people who had had an experience with God that had so radically changed and transformed their life, taking them from darkness to light, that they joined in mission with God. If you are going to call yourself an assembly of God church, if you're going to be part of a movement of Pentecostalism, can I just remind you one more time that you have got to be a people committed to this word. When pastor says there's a Bible study, you be there. When you get up in the morning and you got other stuff to do, grab this book. Open it up and make it a part of who you are. 
But beyond that, say, Lord, take what I am reading and incorporate it into my life. The things that I struggle with and have struggled with for so long, God, I give them to you again, and I am expecting that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, are going to change me, and then in that, equip me. Because there is a lost and dying world, and God is on a mission to redeem them. And he is inviting you to join him. You have the word of God. If you don't have a copy, Pastor Barry will find you one. You have the word of God. And the spirit of God is just waiting to do whatever it is you need to be who he has created you to be. And once that happens, he is going to begin to give you creative ideas of how he wants to use you. See, every Pentecostal person is equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit for purpose. God doesn't give you the bread of life so we can all sit around and have little Pentecostal picnics. He wants us to feed a hungry world. Foodies. Would you just stand? And as I have given you these three things, I want you to ask the Lord to show you. Lord, have I been neglectful in the word of God? Lord, I hear all these things they talk about. We sang a song this morning about, about he sees the red door and he passes. I don't know what that means. Lord, I want to learn the word. If that's you, I challenge you every week, every day this week, to open this book and just read until you find something that hits you and then write it down. And then the next day, open the book again to the same place, keep reading, and when you find something that hits you, write it down. Can I challenge you to do that for a week and begin to expose yourself to the Word of God? Or maybe you're here and and, and you're saying, I'm ready to move on. I've I've got things in, in my life that I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need transformation. I'm sick of living the way I do. I, I, need, I need help. I can't stop. I've, I've quit and I've quit and I've quit and I've quit and I start and I start and I start and I start. I need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you can say, I simply need more. I just need more. But listen, God ain't going to give you more if you're just going to sit on it. Don't ask him for power that you're not going to use. And then begin to look around. Pastor, where can I serve? Is there a project that I could donate to? Is there a place, is there a toddler I could teach? Is there a junior high boy that I could mentor? Oh, may your tribe increase. God has a purpose. He has a purpose. Mom, don't quit discipling those babies. Grandma, write letters to that grandson that's on that verge there in high school of making some bad decisions. You have a mission. And if you're going to keep the name, and lots of churches are changing their names, so maybe I shouldn't say that. If you're going to keep the affiliation of the assemblies of God, you've got to be people of the book, people of the spirit, and people of the mission. God, you know where we are today. 
Lord, for those of us who need to be in the word, would you convict us? And Lord, don't stop the conviction today. Wake us up in the morning, Lord. And when we wake up, remind us, yesterday you said you were going to be in the word. Lord, make us people of your word so that it gets into us. And then, Lord, make us people of your spirit. For those here who need the transforming power of the spirit, maybe for the first time, maybe they have never known what it is to serve you. Lord, in this moment, would you call them and draw them in a way that they would say, here I am, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I am saying that I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life because I need transforming. Lord, we need more of you. And then, Lord, would you equip us to do what you've called us to do? Because Indonola needs a church that is a representation of the kingdom of God. So, Lord, I am asking, as I drive out of this city today, that I am leaving a people who are committed to the mission. Lord, I thank you for the pastor and the staff of this church. I thank you for every person who keeps it moving. But, Lord, I pray that should you tarry in 50 years or 100 years, because of the decisions that these people are making today, there will still be a representation of the kingdom of God for the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of this city. And may it be fully Pentecostal in Jesus' name. Amen.